Rambam Mishri Torah with Mazu and Brocha. We are beginning today. Book 14. Sefer Yudalit, Sefer Shoftim. The book of Judges. The final book of the 14 books of Mishri Torah. And as the Rambam opens every book, he opens with a verse. That has to do with the theme of the book. A verse from the written law. This one is from Proverbs chapter 31. Verse 9. Psach, Picha. Open your mouth. Shvot, Tzedek. Judge righteously. Bidin oni ve'evion. And render justice for the poor and the indigent. Which means that judging is a serious business. Sefer Shoftim, the book of Judges. It's interesting. Book 13 was the book of Mishpatim, laws. This is the book of judges who implement the laws. The who, and it is Sefer Avos, or book 14, the final of the 14 books. Hilchesav, the subject matter of its laws are Chalesh 5, Vizel, Sidurim, and this is the order. What? Hilchas Sanhedrin, Bilan Oshim, Amasurim, the laws of Sanhedrin, and the punishments that are handed over to the Sanhedrin. And I just want to add, on a very personal level for us and many of the people sitting here, we have had the benefit that for the past many years, in our Monday night Talmud class, we studied the tractate of Sanhedrin. So we have a Talmudic, Mishnaic, and Talmudic background right here from this room in many of the laws in this book. So we have an advantage over those who might not. The laws of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin are the supreme courts. As we will talk, there is the supreme supreme court, which is the court of 71. And then there is a senior court, a supreme court, which are in every large city, courts of 23 that have the capacity to deal with capital issues. One is called a minor Sanhedrin. The other is called a major Sanhedrin. And the punishments under their jurisdiction, law number two, Hilchus Edus, the laws of testimony. As we know from our study in Sanhedrin, testimony is complex. Hilchus Mamrim, the laws of rebellious people. What do you do with rebellious people, specifically rebellious judges and leaders? In this category of laws, the Rambam also inserts Hilchas Eva, the laws of mourning. And we'll talk later why he chose to insert the laws of mourning into the laws of judges. And finally, the final category, which concludes this book. And when we conclude this, this will mark the conclusion of the entire cycle. Hilchas Milachim Umilchamisayim, the laws of kings in Jewish life and their wars. And the Rambam, of course, concludes his final set of halachas with the laws of Mashiach. Okay, now we come to the list. Hilchas Sanhedrin, the laws of courts. Beyond notion and the punishments, penalties. I'm assuming handed over. The Rambam now enumerates 30, 30 commandments covered in this book. Yes, in general, there are in this book, Shalashim, Mitzvah, 30 commandments. Eser, Mitzvah, Asay, 10 positive commandments. Esrin, and 20, Mitzvah, Leisas, and negative commandments. The Zehu, Proton, and these are the details. Aleph, so the Rambam here enumerates the Mitzvahs covered in this book, which is what the Rambam usually does. One, Lemanes, Shaftim, to appoint judges. There is a portion in the Torah called Shoftim. Shoftim, Vishotrim, Titim, Lechal, Bechal, Shorecha. You must appoint judges and enforcement officers in all your gates, in all your cities. That's the Mitzvah, to appoint judges. Not to appoint judges who have no idea about how to judge. You don't appoint a judge because he's your brother-in-law. You don't appoint a judge because he's a supporter, he's wealthy. You appoint a judge because he knows how to judge. To follow the majority in If these judges disagreed, majority rules within. God-fearing judges. Never to invoke capital punishment. If the majority of judges were only a majority of one. We want at least a majority of two. So therefore, in a court of 23, for example, if you have 22 judges, no, I said that wrong. If you have 11 judges who say he is guilty, no, I said that wrong. Uh, 12 judges who say he's guilty, 11 judges who say he's innocent, that's a majority of one. You do not kill someone because it's only a majority of one. You need a majority of two. So you need 12 judges to say he's guilty and 10 judges to say he's innocent. And I guess one is undecided or whatever. We'll learn all the details. You need a majority of two to kill. You need a majority of one to declare innocence. So we're going to learn all these details. Okay. Hey, Shalei, that's why the court is 23, as we will learn. In order to understand this, I need to give a little bit of a background. The way a Jewish capital court works, a court of 23. Why is it 23? Because the Torah says a verse. Loosely translated. The community will prosecute, the community will defend. In Western courts, we have prosecutors and we have defense attorneys. And then we have judges and we have juries. In a Jewish court, you've got none of the above. You have judges. And everything is within those judges. So you have to have, an Ada means a community. You have to have a possibility of at least 10 who can say he's guilty. You have to have a possibility of at least 10 to say he's innocent, that's 20. And then you need a majority of two if you're going to convict. So you need 22. 
22 would be 12 saying guilty, 10 saying innocent. But you can't have an even court. That's why you have 23. That's the reason for the 23. Now we say that the people, the judges who line up for prosecution, are prosecution judges. That's their argument. The judges who line up for defense, they are defense judges. That's their argument. That's their, that's their logic. That's their thought. We don't want the judge who previously argued for an acquittal to suddenly switch and argue for prosecution. No. We don't want that. And we're going to talk about the details of one yes and one no. Many of you remember we learned that extensively in Gemara. One of the forms of capital punishment is stoning. Another form is burning, which, as we will learn, is pouring hot lead down the person's throat. Killing by the sword. Nine is killing by choking. And we're going to learn all about these details. Lislay's hanging. Nobody ever was killed by hanging. But the person who was stoned, his corpse is hanged afterwards for a short time. To bury the person who was killed on the same day. And as an outgrowth of 11, we have 12. Not to have his corpse remain hanging overnight. Moving right along. Not to allow a sorcerer, a black magic practitioner to live. Someone who is convicted of violating a biblical transgression that fits the bill should receive the mandated lashes. We talk about 39 lashes, and we're going to talk about the details. They call a doctor, and the doctor says, how many lashes can this guy handle without being harmed? What if the doctor says 11? That's the maximum they give him, and so on. It's good to know doctors. Never to give more than 39 lashes. Never to punish a person forced to commit a sin. For example, let's take a very practical issue. If someone is, God forbid, raped, you never punish the victim, which some cultures live to punish the victim. A victim is a victim. A victim is not a perpetrator. Never to kill a person because the courts guess and suspect the guy's guilty. There has to be clear testimony and proof. Never to have mercy upon a person who killed someone or who injured someone. Mercy doesn't belong in law. There's law and there's mercy. I'm going to learn about that application. We know that there are two leanings in life. Some people, we call them, for lack of a better word, liberals. Some people are liberal. They always feel bad for the poor man. You can't feel bad for a poor man in court. Some people are, for lack of better words, conservatives. And they're always sympathetic to the wealthy leadership. You can't beautify the great man, the wealthy man, in court. In court, we have to treat the poor man and the wealthy man. Not to pervert judgment against a sinner. We know that somebody is not a God-fearing man. He's a transgressor. He's a sinner. So you say, why do I need to? Ah, hang him. Even though he's a sinner, the question is, is he guilty of this crime? Not to pervert justice. You have to have honest judges. Not to pervert the case of converts and orphans, one way or another. You're going to be more sympathetic because he's a convert or an orphan. Less sympathetic because he's a convert or an orphan. Whatever it is, it's wrong. To judge righteously. This is a tough one. Not to fear in judgment strong men. When somebody's threatened to judge. You know, we, we, in our world we've seen judges threatened, we've seen judges killed. A judge is forbidden to be afraid. 26 is not to take bribes, not to accept bribes in all these details. 27 is not to curse judges. 28 is not to take up Hashem's name in vain or not to accept false reports, not to lie in court, not to lie under oath, all of those. 29, not to curse the head of the Sanhedrin, as we will learn, the head of the Sanhedrin, the one who takes Moshe Rabbeinu's place, is called the Nasi, not the, the leader, not to curse the leader. Lamed, finally, number 30, not to curse any other kosher Jew. The guy is a Jew, is a normal, average guy, you don't curse him. You can only curse terrorists. The explanation of these mitzvahs, the broken elu, upcoming in the following chapters. We begin with... Christian chapter 1. Aleph, mitzvah asay, shalteira. It is a positive biblical commandment. Lemana is to appoint shaitim judges, the shaitim and officers, the medina, medina, in every city. The word medina has many interpretations. Here it's in every city. Or the whole plach, and in every region. 
regional courts. Shenemar, as it says, Shaftim Bishaytim, Kitim Lachol, Bachol Sharech, judges and enforcement officers here shall appoint in all your gates. Shaftim, judges, Eloah, Dayonim, Akwim, Bebezdin. These are the judges who are set in court. Obaladinim and litigants, boy and calm, live before them. Shaytim are enforcement officers. Eloh, Bali, Makal, Rutsua. These are the people with, in our world, with guns. These are the people with sticks and whips. They are the officers, the officers of the court, who stand before the judges. They walk, patrol the streets, and they control, they patrol the stores. This is what we call Department of Weights and Measures. To correct the weights. And they are the police to use force to engage any person who perverts justice. That's why they call them the police force. Sometimes they police by force. The Chalmaseim and everything they do, they don't have independent powers of judgment. Are by the mouths of the judges. If Mr. A sees Mr. B acting perversely, for example, Mr. A sees that Mr. B in his bakery has a dishonest scale. He takes him to court. And the court deals with whatever his transgression is according to the level of his transgression. We said we have to appoint judges in every city and in every region. Let's take the world we live in. Let's take for a moment you have the courts of the city. You have county courts. You have state courts. However, they are divided. Then you have federal courts. And you have the appeals courts. And then you have the Supreme Court. However, that is divided. Levels of court. So that if somebody owes you $20, you don't appeal it to the Supreme Court. Well, you can appeal it, but you don't take it to the Supreme Court. Probably if you're going to try and appeal it, you're not going to get through the system. So there are levels of courts. We're not obligated to establish courts. In every region, and in every city. Only in Israel. But out of Israel, we're not obligated to establish a court. In every region, only in local areas. Give you in every gate and Hashem gives you. In other words, the question is, in the diaspora, there also should be a system of Bedin. But it's not like, pervasive like in Israel. How many courts should there be set within the Jewish people? And what should be their count? So he says, at first we said, the supreme court in the base of the who, and that is, that which is called, the great Sanhedrin. The number of the great Sanhedrin, 71. This is the supreme court of 71. Shenemar, this is Chumash based, Bible based. Esrali, I shall gather thee, says Moshe, Shibi Mish, 70 men, Mizikli Israel, the elders, wise men of Israel, Omosha Agabe, and Moshe is on top of them. He is the Supreme Court Justice. He's number one. That's 70 plus one. Shenemar, Yatsu, you shall report from there. Imach with you. Have them report with you. Are they Shibi Becha? That's 71. So when Moshe is alive, Moshe is the head of the Supreme Court. The wisest of all of them. He is appointed the head. He's known as Rosh Hayashiva, the head of the gathering, the head of the Sanhedrin. And he is referred to by the sages, Nasi, as the word Nasi. What is Nasi? Nasi is the head of the Sanhedrin, the leader of the Jewish people, the president of the Sanhedrin. In every place. Moshiach will be the Nasi, the head of the Jewish people. Moshe, Moshiach. The particular head of the Supreme Court at that time takes Moshe's place. Now, so you have the Moshe, you have the number one guy, but then you have 70, you pick within the 70, the number two guy. Who within the 70 is the top guy? And he is seated to the right of the head. And he is called Anikra Abbezin. He's called the head of the Bedin, the number two guy. So you have the Nasi is the number one guy, the Abbezin is the number two guy. Shar Hashim and the other 70 Asians sit before him, Kifi Shneem, like according to their age, and according to their level. Anyone who is greater in wisdom than the other, Yakarib Nasi should be closest to the Nasi, to the head, Mismaili, Yesa Mechavere. Says the Rambam here, the left side of the Nasi, the left of the Moshe Rabbeinu guy, takes precedence. Over the right. The Hen Yeshim and they sit, like a half moon, or what he calls here a half granary. I just lost my place. Today, Hanosi in a semicircle, in order that the Nosi in Abbezin and the Abbezin, Ray and Kulam, should see all of them. Now, there are various opinions as to how this works. Here we have a little piece of art in the Rambam here, which gives us one opinion. And that is, and we're going to get some uh, zooming action here. 
Okay, get, get that as big as you can. We have a depiction of the Supreme Sanhedrin. You have A in the middle, according to this, is the seat of the Ab Bezdin. So according to this, it's simply in the middle. B, I'm sorry, A is the seat of the Nasi. B is the seat of the Ab Bezdin. C, as we will learn, three rows of 23 seats for the judges. So three times 23, 69. 69 plus 2. Now according to this, where is C? On our left. Then you have D on the other side of the semicircle. You have, as we will learn, three rows for students who will be upcoming members, possibly, of the Sanhedrin. So that's this particular diagram. There's another diagram which has a different opinion. And that is that everyone sat in one row, one semicircle. You had the number one and number two guy sitting in the center. And then to his left is number three. To their right is number four. To their left is number five. To their right is number six. So that on the extreme edge, you have number 69 and number 70. That's another opinion of how this works. Okay. Moving right along. In addition to the Supreme Court of 71, my friends, there are in Jerusalem two additional Supreme Courts of 23 judges. One should be Al-Pesach at the entrance of the Temple Courtyard. The Echad and one Al-Pesach is at the entrance to the Temple Mount. In simple terms, there are many issues that come up based on English related. There are many issues that come up where people need serious courts. Not everybody goes to the Supreme Sanhedrin of 71. They've got to go through the system. Furthermore, we establish in every other city in Israel, every major city within Israel, what's called a major city. A city has to have at least 120 families or more. Those of us who come from the old world, I come from the old world of Newark. Those of us who come from the old world know that, for example, our dear friend Sal Teichman always says, in his city, people said, How many people wear a talis, which means a head of a household. You need 120 talis, 120 families, a yeser or more. That is the minimum that requires a small 23-member Sanhedrin. We're in the gate of the city. Downtown, in the downtown. as it says, They shall establish judgment in your gates. A verse in Amos. How many members in this court? 23. And the greatest wise man of all 23. is ahead. And the balance, should sit the eagle in a circle. Like a semicircle. What is the purpose of sitting in a semicircle? So that the head guy sees everyone. Because if they sit in a straight row, then the guy can't see down to his left, he can't see down to his right. If we sit in a semicircle, everybody can see everybody. Dalid, what if there's a city that does not have 120 families? What kind of court does it get? It gets a court of three. So that the main numbers of courts are 71, 23, and 3. Although, as we learn in Gemara Sanhedrin, sometimes the court becomes 5 and 7, but we're not going there right now. Why do we need 3? Because we need to have a majority and a minority. 2 to 1. In there's a dispute in any law. Hey, any city that doesn't have two wise men, which means two people of really great knowledge, the one who is a good teacher of Torah, and can rule in Torah. So one knows his stuff. And the, one is a good scholar, and the other is a good teacher. And Meshiva Sanhedrin does not deserve a Sanhedrin. Even though there are thousands of families living there. Because you need to have people who know their stuff. You can't have an ignorant court. But if there's a Sanhedrin that has these two, one who is a scholar who knows how to rule, and the other one who knows how to ask, ask and answer. One who can hear questions and respond. And one who is a scholar. This can be a Sanhedrin. Which means if you have at least these two, you can have a Sanhedrin of 23. The other 21 will be God-fearing people. What if there's not two scholars and, and teachers, but there's three? It's even better. It's an intermediate level court. What if you have four scholars who know how to rule and teach? This is a wise Sanhedrin. What do we need to 23? The 23 could be junior members of the Sanhedrin. But if you have four real scholars and teachers, you're doing great. Now he says in 7, call Sanhedrin, any minor Sanhedrin, what's a minor Sanhedrin? A court of 23. You always seat before them. In addition to the court of 23, three rows of Torah scholars, not members of the Sanhedrin. On top of that. The whole shura, the shura, every row should have S in Mishlesha, each 23. What are these? Fillings. These are people you're going to promote into the Sanhedrin. These are the Torah scholars who watch and observe and learn and grow. 
Shura Rishayna, the first row, Kareba, the Sanhedrin, is closest to the Sanhedrin. Shura Shniya, the second row, Lamata Imenu, is a little more distant or lower. Shlisha Lamata Imenu, and the third row is lower. And where do people sit? In the row itself. Depends upon their wisdom. So it's a stature game. The more prominent students are the ones who are going to be the first one to replace a member of the Sanhedrin who disappears. In Nechlekuah Sanhedrin, now, where would we use these yeshiva students? Where would we use these Torah scholars? If there was a difference among the Sanhedrin. And for some reason, it was necessary to add a person to their number because we had a tie or whatever. A little bit later here. In chapter 9, Halacha 2, he gives a whole exercise of how it works, and I'll go through this quickly. The following rules apply when there's a difference of opinion in a minor Sanhedrin. If 12 judges say that he should be exonerated, and 11 say he should be held liable, he's exonerated because you have a majority of one. Or 11 say that he should be exonerated, and 11 say he's liable, and one says, equate it. I don't know, didn't say pa. We add two judges. That's where you need to have a pool to add judges to. Even if there are 12 who wish to exonerate, and 12 will hold them liable, and one says, I don't know, we add two judges. And so on and so forth. We'll learn it when we get to chapter 9 in greater detail. Okay. So, back to our chapter 1, Halacha 8. Seimchid minarishena godol shabah, the Sanhedrin, Grants ordination, smicha, to the greatest of these disciples. The greatest of these three rows of disciples. Now, you've promoted a guy from the inner block. The first guy, the number one guy in row two, and sits at the end of row one, in order to fill the gap. And the number one guy in row three, is promoted, when he comes, the same at the end of row two. So it's a process where you keep promoting within. It's interesting, in corporate law, in the corporate world today, there's, there are two divergent philosophies. One philosophy is when you have a big corporation and the head of the corporation resigns or quits or is fired or is terminated, what do you do? Who do you get? The answer is you get the head of another big corporation, you pay him more money, you give him a package to sign on, and he comes and suddenly the head of General Motors is running General Electric. The head of General Electric is running General Motors. There's another philosophy, promote within. Promote from within. You take the guy just under that. This is a philosophy of promote from within. You take the greatest scholar of the students and you make it part of the sign. Everybody else moves up a step. Very interesting. So also, as we learn later, sometimes you have to ordain and immediately make part of the Sanhedrin, two people or three people. You finish, you follow the same system. Nine out of ten. Now he says, everywhere where there is a Sanhedrin, there's a whole shopping list of requirements. There must be There always has to be two legal scribes. I guess, what, what do we call here? Court clerks? Huh? Court reporters. They sit with their crazy reading machine. They used to call it, uh, today it's a blackberry, huh? And, and they, they record everything. Court reporters. Why do we need two? One to the right. And one to the left. What does it mean, right, left? One court reporter is responsible to document anything that will benefit the litigant. Benefit the dependent. And one is obligated to document anything that will not, any prosecution. One writes arguments who seek to make him liable. And one, those who seek those arguments that seek to exonerate. And now we have an interesting halacha, which is the closing halacha of our chapter one. Where did the number 120 come from? That the minimum households are 120. Where is that from? So he says, I'll explain it to you. It's a theoretical number. In order that, in order that there should be able to be potentially a court of 23, we need our mathematicians to do math, and three rows of 23, so that is 69 plus 23, you need 10 people who are, don't have any other job other than the fact that they sit in the synagogue and study Torah. These are known as the 10 scholars of the city. The meaning of Batlonim is they are free of other responsibilities. You need two scribes to write everything, as mentioned before, the two court reports. And then you need two chazonim. Chazon, in our world, means a cantor. But in their world, it meant a, a court officer. You need to have two litigants. You need at least two witnesses. You need two witnesses to say it. How could you be witnesses when we were in Vegas with you? 
You're lying witnesses who say they're Now we need two witnesses who can disqualify the two witnesses who say they were in Vegas. Now we're going to learn all these scenarios. You need two people who are in charge of raising money for charity. And then you need a third person who will join the two when it comes to dispensing the money to needy people. It's always best to have a troika of three people dispense. Then you need an expert doctor. Thank God we have our expert doctor here. Because every community needs a doctor. If you don't have a doctor, you've got a problem. And then, by the way, the, the uh, commentary say that the doctor also has to be a bloodletter. That's why the barbershops have the... And then you need a scribe. What is a scribe? A scribe is a document producer. You can't have a city without documents. You've got to write a contract. You have to write a suba. You have to write a divorce. And then you need a teacher of children. That's our shopping list of 120. End of chapter 1. Rambam, Mishnah Torah. The laws of Sanhedrin. The courts. And the punishments that are handed over to the courts to execute. Aleph 1. We defined earlier that when we talk about the term Sanhedrin, these are two types. One is the Supreme Court of 71. The other is the court that is licensed to deal with serious and capital matters, Court of 23. There's only one Supreme Court of 71. There are courts of 23 in every major community. We do not appoint to the court, to the Sanhedrin court. Whether we're talking about the court of 71, we're talking about the minor Sanhedrin court of 23. Wise and understanding. In general, we say, what's the difference between wise and understanding? Wise is somebody who's wise. Understanding is somebody who can logically deduce one matter from another. Great people in Torah knowledge, scholars, unusual scholars, great intellect, also knowledgeable in general terms, in secular wisdom. They should know the score to gain, for example. In order to be an effective member of the Sanhedrin, you have to have a background in medicine, because so much of halacha deals with medical issues. You need to know mathematics. And the fixing of calendars, cycles, seasons. Umazolois, the Stagninus, astronomy, astrology. You also need to know the ways of various idolatries, such as these forbidden in the Torah, fortune telling, magic, the Hamachashvin, all kinds of sorcery. The Havayavidis are all the follies of idolatry, or similar. For example, it says that a Jew is not allowed to study about idol worship unless he needs to know because he's a judge. You can't judge if you don't know. Also, we don't appoint to the Sanhedrin, only people who are either Kohanim or Levim, either. Of the priestly family, Levites, the Israelites, or if they are Israelites, they must be Hamuchosim of a good pedigree. What does that mean? An Israelite that may marry a Kohen, which means, as we will learn, a clean pedigree, and we don't have converts involved, and so on and so forth, as we will define momentarily. As it says, have them stand there with you, God said to Moshe, they should mirror your attributes, in wisdom of the in fear of God, and in lineage. In the large court of 71, it's an extra mitzvah to have Kohanim and Levim. The Pesach actually says, You will come to the Kohanim and the Levites. Which means you can have Israelites, but have a bunch of Kohanim and Levites as well. So if you didn't find someone who's a Kohanim and a Levi, who's also fit to be in the Sanhedrin, it's okay, even if they were all Israelites. It's okay. You don't put in any Sanhedrin. Not a very old man. Why? Because very old men are angry. Commentaries say, How old does it take to be very angry? And to fit into this category, 90 years old and up. And not someone who is a eunuch who does not have male attributes who can't reproduce. Why? Because people who are very old or people who lost their reproductive organs are usually angry people and cruel people. They don't have the compassion. Also, better not to put someone who does not have children. Why? Because when people have children, they have a lot of compassion. When people don't have children, they lack that compassion. As a father has compassion over his children. Now, if there's somebody who's a great judge, the commentary says, okay, if you don't have children. But these are desired attributes. Why? He gives a reason. Today, because we want a compassionate judge. We want a smart judge and a tough judge, but also a compassionate judge. Also, it's inappropriate to place a king of Israel in the Sanhedrin. Why? Because as a king, you can't argue with him and you can't rebel against what he says. So therefore, Sanhedrin is made to debate. You have, for example, the head of the Sanhedrin. You're not supposed to do everything he says. You're supposed to debate him. That's why, as we will learn, you start from the lesser members of the Sanhedrin. So they shouldn't be intimidated. They should be able to express their opinion. 
As I explained earlier in the introduction, we here in our community have a special advantage because we learned a good part of the tractate of the Sanhedrin. Gemara and Talmud in our Monday night class, and we learned it very slowly and then very meticulously. So we have a lot of background in this subject. Abel, however, we can appoint a high priest to be part of the Sanhedrin, provided that you're not appointing him because he has a brother-in-law, you're appointing him because he's wise. And he points out here, as we know, that in the period of the second base on English, the second holy temple, where the Romans would have power over the high priesthood, there was a lot of buying and selling the position of high priesthood to a lot of immoral people. So obviously, just because someone's a high priest doesn't mean he's qualified for the Sanhedrin. Ezra, the Hasofer, Shimon, Hatzadik, Ezra describes Simon the Just were high priests and others, so there's no reason why a high priest, and, and they were also heads of the Sanhedrin. Malchai based David, the kings of the Davidic dynasty, the kings of Judah, Judea, even though we don't make them a formal part of the Sanhedrin because they're kings, but they can sit in judgment of the people, and they can be judged if there is an issue with them. In other words, the king could be taken to the Sanhedrin. The king can judge, even though he shouldn't be a formal member of the Sanhedrin. For example, King David was the supreme judge, King Solomon. Abba Malchai Israel, that goes for the Davidic dynasty. But kings of the ten tribes, we should not judge them. They should not be judges. We should not judge them. Because by and large, the kings of what is known as Israel, Samaria, the ten tribes, were not God-fearing. And they created a lot of tourists. But here he says they are not humble to the words of Torah. Therefore, Shema, Tobe, Mehem, you're going to involve them in the Sanhedrin, you're only going to have trouble. So don't judge them and just let them be. Separate politics from Halacha. Because they were a tough bunch, as we know, learning the stories in the Tanakh. Now, the notes here, brought down from Sanhedrin, says that this law was enacted because of the conduct of Yanai. Yanai actually came much later. One of the Hasmonean kings, Kashmonayim. One of Yanai's servants slew, killed another person. So this sage summoned Yanai, Yanai, King Yanai, to give testimony at his trial. So Yanai got a subpoena to come testify. The king. Yanai complied with their request and appeared in court. Why? He didn't want to mess with the Sanhedrin. However, he was a king, so he seated himself in front of the judges. Shimon ben Shotah, who was a presiding judge, who had some bad blood with Yanai, said to Yanai, stand. Don't think of yourself as standing before us. Think of yourself as standing before God. So Yanai said, what do your colleagues say? I don't like you, but I'll follow their directives and not yours. So he turned to the other judges and he said, no. What do you say? They all lowered their heads unwilling to challenge Yanai. When Shimon ben Shatah saw this, he declared, you are all concerned with your own thoughts. May the master of thought repay you. May God get you. At that moment, Shimon ben Shatah was a very holy man. At that moment, all of them died. Must have been something they ate. After this event, I told them not to eat the tafuri. After that event, our sages said, a king should not judge, nor should he be judged. Now again, the timing is off because the story with Yanai was much later than the Ten Tribes, but it gives a little background. Okay. Above six, just as the judges of the court should be clean. They should have what we call today's world, clean hands. They should be at the highest level of righteousness. They have to have purity and they have to be cleansed of all physical blemishes. You don't want someone in the Sanhedrin to be physically blemished. And we have to work hard, if possible, to search and to investigate. That they should all be dignified. They should have gray hair. You know, gray hair gives you dignity. They should be tall. Well, you know, sort of. They should be good looking. They should understand even lachash, whispered matters. Understand the words of the Torah, which are communicated in whispers. Mysticism. They should know mystical secrets. They should be linguists. They should know a lot of languages. Sanhedrin were mandated to know languages. Why? Because everything gets lost in the translation. In, in some inter- international treaties, where you have uh, the English version, and this version, and that version, and you can spend six years arguing about one word. We don't want the Supreme Court to hear it from a translator. So that's the court of 71, and that's the court of 23. show the court of three. Now we're going down. We said that every city, even a small city, should have a court of three. It's called a bed dina. Even though we're not meticulous to meet all of the above requirements for a court of three. If possible, they should all have seven attributes. The Rabbah says, and what if you can't find a court of three with seven 
attributes, we should do we should do our best to seek out individuals who possess many as many of these qualities as possible, and appoint them as judges. This is the menu. They should have wisdom and humility. And the hatred of money, it doesn't mean that they hate money, but it means they're the opposite of greedy. They're not living for money. There's, there's an old joke that I love to tell. Jackie Mason says, the most, important, the most important thing in life is not money, it's love. I love money. The Abbas M is loving truth. So the, the judges should not be loving money. They should love truth. The Abbas Habri and they should love people. Obali Shem they should be reputable. Good reputation. You don't want to find their picture hanging in the post office. And all of these attributes, Mithpeyroshin are spelled out, as it says, with the conversation of Yisro, Moshe's father-in-law and Yisro, when he suggested that he establish lower courts, the whole lower court system. Anoshim men chachamim wise and obeyim and understanding. That's wise. You do this. Shabtecham known to your tribes. This is someone who brings pleasure to people. It says in Pirkei How do you know whom God likes? If people like them, probably Hashem likes them. With what qualities will they be beloved by people? If they will have a good eye, meaning a generous eye, a benevolent eye, they look at everything in a positive way. A humble spirit. They hang out with good people. And they conduct themselves and speak gently with people. They're not bullies. And in other, other places it says, Men of valor. What does it mean a man of valor? Does it mean they should be a soldier? They should be uh, bench pressing a uh, thousand pounds. What's a man of valor? That's not a bad idea. People who are super strong in the observance of commandments. They should be men of valor spiritually in the army of Hashem. And we dagged him, Allah's more meticulous in their observance. The Keshem is in control, their own evil inclination. They shouldn't have any negative issues following them and no negative reputation. I believe this means that even in their youth, they had a good reputation. And included in men of valor, that they should have a courageous heart, having the courage and the guts to save people who are being oppressed by others from the one who are oppressing them because the average person says, hey, I don't want to get involved, leave me alone. As we see, the first head of the Sanhedrin motion of Bingham was walking down the street in Egypt, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster bullying some slaves. My Yochum, Moshe, Moshe, Moshe rose up and saved them. And Moshe got in big trouble. Moshe Rabbeinu, one of them, just as Moshe Rabbeinu was humble. Every judge has to be humble. They're not chasing money, even their money, let alone somebody else's money. There are some people who will do anything for a dollar. My father of blessed memory, who was also my teacher, taught me something in this subject. There's an old expression that a negative attribute is sinas chinam, hatred for no reason at all. So my father of blessed memory used to restate this. He says, this gentleman, he has sinas chinam. He hates doing anything for nothing. He'll only do it if he makes money. Sinas chinam, meaning making a buck is the most important thing. If there's nothing in it for me, have a good day. No, people need to volunteer. People need to be giving. Not to chase money. Because anybody who pursues wealth, says the verse, will ultimately be overcome by want. Truth of the matter is that when money is the most important, you never have enough. When do you have enough money? Men of truth, they should pursue justice, because of their own beliefs, but not in their own mind. They love truth. The same as the said they hate robbery, crime, and they run away from any forms of perversion or crookedness. Now, this is a big shopping list. From the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, they send emissaries throughout Israel and they would investigate. They would see anyone who was wise, and God fearing, and humble. Now they would promote from within, from there, they would promote him to the Bedin at the Temple Mount, the quarter of 23 we talked about earlier. From there, they would promote him to the quarter of 23 at the gateway of the Holy Temple. From there, he would be promoted to the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin of 71. So, again, we talked about this earlier in earlier classes. There's this idea of promoting from within. We alluded to this earlier. The court of three, well, one of them was a convert. This is unfit. Even though in Jewish law, a convert who is converted by Jewish law, by halacha, is 100% Jewish. Nevertheless, we don't want a convert in a Bedin, even a court of three. Until he'll be born of a Jewish mother, it doesn't bother us if his father is a convert. But his mother should be a Jewish. What if one of them was what we call a biblical mamzer, the byproduct of an illicit relationship by Torah law, 
as we learned in great detail in the laws of marriage. I feel the on even if all three of these are the byproducts of illegitimate marriage, that's not a problem. There's no reason they cannot be judges. The expression is Mamzer, someone who is the byproduct of an illegitimate marriage. Kagan takes precedence, Likohen Gogo, Amoris to a high priest who's in Ingramus. The fact that somebody is a byproduct of an illegitimate marriage is not his fault. If he's a great power scholar, he can become a judge. All of them were blind in one eye. Obviously, if someone got forbid is blind in one eye, it takes away depth perception and other limitations in vision. You can speak with your optometrist. Kosher, it's still kosher. We need somebody to have both working eyes. But if someone is blind, period, with both eyes, he's unfit, period, to be even in a court of three. Now, there's some interesting comments on this prohibition of a court of three, even a court of three having a convert. And the biggest challenge is that you have two of the most renowned scholars and heads of the Jewish people, the famous Shmaya and Aftalim, teachers of Hillel and Shammai, who were converts. And they were the head of the Sanhedrin. No. How does that make sense? The answer is, yes. If you have someone with the wisdom and knowledge of Shmaya and Italian, they can transcend this law. But not just a regular guy. So here we see that even a convert is not limited. Look at two of the greatest teachers who ever lived were converts. Depending upon the opinion that you follow, Rabbi Akiva was either a convert or the son of a convert. So there really are no limitations for converts in Torah and judgment. Even though, the Rambam says there is, Yud, Ah, Papish, and Bezant, Pachas, moving right along, even though a court can't be less than three, a bed is three. Even one can Judge through Torah law if there is no choice. One great person, Shenemah, that said that with justice, with righteousness, you should judge your friend. We did say him, however, rabbinically, actually, it's better for that one to add two more. And when two judges adjudicate a case, their law, their decision is not a decision unless they're Torah scholars. We're talking about people who are not Torah scholars. But the truth of the matter is that any two litigants can sign that even any one person should be their arbiter, arbitration. So this is not in that case, not in the case of arbitration. You'd all live. One was an expert, and renowned expert. He's licensed by the Beddin. This person may judge alone. But no one should think it's better for him to seat two more people with him. Because our sages say, don't judge alone. There's only one who judges alone, and that is God Almighty. Now, what if there is no court? What if I'm driving by, and I see my laptop sitting on somebody's desk in his house, and he's using my laptop? What should I do? I can't call 911 because I don't know the number. A person under certain conditions can actually take the law into his own hands. In If he has the strength to do it. Why? Because it's his object. As long as he's certain, he's acting according to the law. He doesn't have to take the trouble and go to court. He can walk into the guy's house, take his laptop. Even though he wouldn't have lost anything had he taken this to court. Who wants to get tied up in court? And this should never be taken simply. There are many conditions. And certainly in the United States, this is not kosher. If the guy who he took the laptop from complained and brought him to court, the door should the court investigated. They ascertained that everything he did was not kosher. And he ruled honestly, and he says in his dinay. They do not abrogate his decision, and they support it. Obviously, if he made a mistake, they get him. You'd give him a lapapi, shabezin, shashle, shabezin, shalom, even though a court of three is a complete court, calls manchain rabim. More than three is better than three. And he's a mishubach, it's better. Eleven is better than ten. Anyone sitting as part of a court should be scholarly and of appropriate character, as stated earlier. Closing paragraph of chapter two. The Asalabim Chachamid is forbidden. For a wise man, she should begin to sit in judgment in a court. She has to know who his colleagues are, who he's sitting with. You don't want to be caught as being a co-judge with Al Capone. Shema, you started him on notion. Perhaps he will associate with people Shema Magunim were unfit. So now he's part of a band of thieves, a band of traitors. He's not in a court. This becomes a kangaroo court. Therefore, it's appropriate for the God-fearing judge to research who he's sitting with. End of chapter 2. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Sanhedrin, the courts. Sanhedrin is a general term which refers to courts, specifically refers to the Supreme Court of 71, or the Capital Court of 23. And the penalties and punishments, which are handed over to them. Chapter 3, moving right out of chapter 2. How long, how far in the day, do the judges sit in the Sanhedrin? What are the Sanhedrin hours? 
Sanhedrin, town of the minor Sanhedrin, which is a court of 23. And then every city has a rabbinic court of three. Nation, their regular hours are after the morning prayer. At safe, sheish, shoys, bayayim, until the end of the sixth hour of the day, meaning until afternoon. So, let's say if the services in that community were 7 a.m., so from 8 to noon is when the court held court. Aval, however, Bezdin, Agodol, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin of 71, would sit, mitomid, shoshachar, from the time of the bringing of the morning sacrifice, the daily sacrifice, which was offered at daybreak, until the time of the offering of the afternoon sacrifice, which was offered nine and a half seasonal hours after sunrise. So, for example, if the day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., a 12-hour day, so nine and a half hours would be about 3.30 p.m. And if the day was much longer, we talk about seasonal hours, which we talked about earlier. That if you, are many, you look on, on any website today and you check the seasonal hours of halachic times, you'll see it tells you what, how long an hour is today. Could be either 48 minutes in a very short day, in a very short place, uh, you know, where the day ends very early, or it could be 72 minutes in a day that's uh, very early to very late. We did that. Okay, what about on Shabbos and Yom Tov, when regular courts do not sit, the high court would sit in the place of gathering, in the place of prayer, on the Temple Mount. And in case there were urgent questions, and on Shabbos it's forbidden to sit in judgment with regard to monetary law, so they would hold their sessions in this chamber, and for people to see that there's a distinction. What would they do on these holy days? They would deal with questions concerning a Kohen had a problem with a sacrifice and so on and so forth. So there always had to be a rabbi available to render a decision. Do not think for a second that the court of 71 always has to have 71 members sitting there waiting. No. There's only 71 members when court is in session. When there's a need to gather everybody all day, they can just have a gathering. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but not 71. But when there's a need, all 71 gather. In other times, anybody who had something to do, he had a business deal to do, he can go do his thing, but he comes back. So that if somebody needs the 71 Sanhedrin, he gives them a few minutes to send out runners to gather everybody together, to send a tweet or a text. But who provided that? There should never be less than 23, which is the number of the minor Sanhedrin. The 71 should never dwindle down to less than 23. If it's about to go below 23, and one of these 23 needs to go out, he looks around to see who's left. In Yishiru, if he counts, he says he goes. If not, he says he should not go until one of the 23 return. Gimel, when it comes to these kind of cases, we do not adjudicate cases at night. From tradition we learned that how do we know we do not adjudicate at night? That adjudication of monetary law should be similar to adjudication of the laws of plagues. Leprosy. What is critically important in the laws of leprosy or plagues? Color. What is critically important for color? Light. If you don't have light, you can't determine real color. There's an expression in the verse. Every dispute and every blemish. Just as disputes of plagues and leprosy are only by day. Also law, meaning financial disputes are usually dealt with by the courts only during the day. On a very personal note, my wife works with colors. She's what we call a colorologist. She does color palettes and other types of color, and she'll only apply herself to doing anything serious during daylight hours, even though she has daylight bulbs in her studio, because you need daylight for colors. For me, the night is fine because I'm colorblind. So also, the courts do not receive testimony. When it comes to financial matters, although we don't begin at night, if they began this heated court case by day, then they conclude at night. Now, the laws of divisions of inheritance, a very complex legal system in Torah, Kadinim, are like financial matters. Because regarding them, it is stated, statute of judgment, therefore inheritances also are not divided up at night. But, as the Rabbas pointed out, if they started by day, they can go into the night. And there is an entire section in the Rambam called the laws of inheritance. 
two people went in to visit a sick person, and he commanded them with regard to his estate, they write it down, they can record his statements, they can use these notes as a basis for testimony in court, but they should not rule right now. But if there were not two, which are witnesses, but in fact three, that's a bezdin, that's a court. If they desire, they can just write and document. If they want to, they can actually adjudicate, they can actually establish this as a bezdin right now. But they should not adjudicate because, again, legal matters are not adjudicated at night. When there is a court of Israel, which is appropriate, the divine presence dwells with them, so that it's actually in the presence of Hashem. But therefore, the judges can't just hang out, put their feet up. They have to sit with fear, with dread and fear. They have to be wrapped in their rabbinic garb or talis, and they must have a humble demeanor. It's inappropriate to mess around or to fool around, to act frivolously, to joke, or to just chat in the court. The court is a holy place. The only conversation could be words of Torah or words of wisdom. You know, we said earlier that the 71 don't have to sit throughout the day, but they can go about their business, they can hang out as long as there's 23. In general, some people said that this type of system would be equivalent to the fire department that we have today. What do the firemen do? The firemen hang out in the fire station. And then when the alarm comes in, in the old world, they slid down the pole, and they ran into the trucks, and in seconds they're on the street. What do the firemen do while they're waiting? They play cards, they hang out, they watch movies, they do nothing. This law is the opposite of that. While you're waiting, the Jews, especially judges, do not kill time. But they occupy themselves in meaningful activity, even when court is not in session. And I'm not trying to knock firemen. Some of my best friends are firemen. Ches kol Sanhedrin, any member of the Sanhedrin, or a full Sanhedrin. A melech or any king, a reish gela, or the head of the diaspora. In, in Babylon, they would appoint a head of the galut, reish galuta, a head of the Jewish community, of the Jewish community outside of Israel, the diaspora Jewish community. Shehemidon lahem Yisrael, who appointed for the Jewish people, dayon she'en ahogun, if the Sanhedrin, or a king, or a head of the community in the diaspora, appointed a judge that was not fit. The eina chacham, the chacham sapere, this judge is not wise in the wisdom of Torah. The royal is dying. He's not fit to be a judge. Even though he's so pleasant, he's so sweet, he's such a nice guy. And he has many of other good points. The one who appoints him, the Sanhedrin or the king, or the head of the diaspora community, transgresses a negative commandment, even though he's a sweetheart. Don't show favoritism in judgment. Traditionally, we learn that this commandment also includes those who are responsible to appoint judges. I recall that my father of blessed memory, who was not only my father, but my teacher, he would, from time to time, say, I'm referring to the point where it says, even though he's a delight, he's a pleasure to deal with, he's a sweetheart. My father of blessed memory would say that one of the problems that we have in America with the rabbinate is that people say, oh, my rabbi, my rabbi is a doll, a sweetheart. So my father says, a doll, a sweetheart, these are lovely things. But a rabbi should not necessarily be a doll or a sweetheart. He should be a leader and a Torah teacher. <laughs> Let somebody else be a doll and a sweetheart. So that's the idea of, he's just a sweetheart. Our sages of blessed memory said, perhaps you'll say, each plainly, oh, this is a good looking guy. He's um, oh, gorgeous. And I'll make him a judge. This guy is strong. He bench presses hundreds of pounds. And I'll make him a judge. This guy is my brother-in-law. He's my relative. Nepotism. I'll make him a judge. This guy is a linguist. He went to the Berlitz School of Languages. Like this fellow says, I speak 14 languages and English the best. And I'll make him a judge. Being gorgeous, being strong, being a relative, being a linguist does not in and of itself make a judge. This person is ignorant of law. To quote Alfredo, very, very dangerous. This would be very dangerous to the legal system. Not because he's wicked, because he's ignorant, because he doesn't know. That's why it says, don't show favoritism in judgment. You don't recognize, you don't appoint somebody to be a judge because he's big or strong or related to you or a linguist. 
These are good qualities, maybe, except they're related to you. To appoint a judge, but these are not reasons to appoint a judge. And furthermore, we said, anyone who appoints for the Jewish people, an inappropriate judge, as if he erected a pillar, a monument. What kind of monument? Of idolatry. Don't erect monuments, which God your God despises. And if this judge is appointed in a place where there are Torah scholars, and this guy is appointed, it's as if he planted an Asherah tree, which is a tree of idolatry. This was a tree that was specifically designated for a particular idolatry. As it says, don't plant an Asherah or any tree near the altar of Hashem your God. The Torah scholar is considered an altar. The inappropriate judge is considered an idolatrous tree. Our sages also said, do not appoint, do not appoint a judge. Do not appoint with me, gods of silver. Now, the word for court is also described as Elohim. A court is also called godly. Don't appoint a court that emanates from the fact that he has money. You know the economy is tough. The mafia is laying off judges. This is a judge appointed only for his wealth. Task called dying any judge. An awesome woman who paid money to this year's that he should be appointed. So he bought his position of judge. We are not allowed to stand up for him and show him honor. Our sages actually commanded to do the opposite and denigrate him. To insult him. To act disrespectfully. Why? Because he's an inappropriate judge. Our sages said that the robe in which he clothes himself, or the talis, the judges used to wear a big talis, which he wraps himself in, this perverted, decadent judge, should be like the saddle blanket of a donkey. It's not a robe and it's not a talis because the judge is a donkey. In fact, people should not chase the position of this nature. This was the way of the sages of old. They would run away from being appointed to the court. They wouldn't seek it. And they would really tolerate tremendous pressure until they agreed to sit in judgment. Until they ascertained that there was nobody as worthy as them. And being humble, they always believed there was nobody as worthy of them. Until they were convinced that if they would insist on not cooperating and agreeing to become a judge, they would just ruin the whole system. In other words, they felt it was true public service. Abba became nevertheless loyalization by They never agreed to become judges. Until the people pressured them, the elders pressured them, they would beseech them, and finally compel them to do it. End of chapter 3.